the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm you. I am your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Kathy Kay. She is the author of The Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know. Um, Kathy, she's a journalist and a New York Times bestselling author and a correspondent, a Washington correspondent for BBC World News America. Uh, she co-authored the book with, um, her co-author is, uh, Gail, what is, let me see, Kathy, who is your co-author for Claire your book? Shipman. Yes, great. Uh, but we're just going to be interviewing Kathy today. And, uh, confidence, confidence, life on confidence says you is a remarkable thing, but for the majority of women, it's in surprisingly short supri- uh, supply, and I'm surprised at that one. Welcome to the show, Kathy, because that's a a topic that I, as a woman, obviously, and, and someone who's been in business for a long time, I was really surprised by the findings, obviously, in your book, that women, we fall really short on the confidence scale, that we are not equal to men. I always thought that we had kind of reached this plateau. We were close to having the same kind of confidence that men have, but apparently we don't. You know, it's so interesting, Catherine, part of the reason we wrote this book is because we wrote our last book about the value of women in the workforce. And I think in many ways, this is a fantastic time for women in business. Companies across America and right around the world now realize that the more women you have in senior positions, it's a great thing for your corporations. Your, your company is actually going to do better. And we were surprised, though, when we interviewed senior women across the country, how many would express self-doubt. They would say to us things like, you know, I was just lucky to get where I am or I was in the right place at the right time. Things that I've spent my career saying or I'm not sure I'm the best person for that promotion or I don't think I have all of the skills to go for that next step up. And it struck us that these women had absolutely no reason to be saying this. They had all of the talents in the world. And also that we wouldn't hear this kind of thing from the guys that we were interviewing. So we started to dig into whether there really was such a thing as a confidence gap and I have to say the data is pretty amazing on that. So you're saying that there is a confidence gap. Of course, my next question then is going to be like, how does it come about? Is it a genetic thing? Is it something that's in our DNA or is it something that we learn? We somehow don't learn to be confident or we don't accept our strengths, our capabilities. Where does it come from? What did you learn in your findings? You've really hit on the whole cocktail because it's a combination, of course, of all of those things. But let me just give you a couple of the stats on this, which I think will make you know, your listeners really realize how, how wide this gap is. Hewlett-Packard has done a study showing that women will only apply for a promotion if they have 100% of the skills required for that particular job. Men are happy to apply for that same job 
if they only have 60% of the skills required because they figure, guess what, we can learn the rest on the job. Columbia University has just come out with a study showing that men routinely overestimate their abilities by some 30%. Women routinely underestimate their abilities. So clearly something's going on. This gap has numbers behind it. What's behind the gap? Part of it's biology. Some of it is the way women are wired. Some of it is in our genes. Some of it is the way we're raising our girls still in school. As we tend to, although girls are now go to school and it's not like it was 20 years ago. Girls are in school and they think they can be everything, right? They can be astronauts or they can be presidents or they can be senators or they can be CEOs. It's not that we're giving the girls the message that, they should, that they should not aim high, it's that we're still instilling in our girls a certain amount of perfectionism about being good girls, drawing within the line, being... But I, I want to stop you there because, Kathy, is it, is who, is, who are the persons who are doing that? You say we. Who are the we? we is have, it still I mean, the school system, the outside culture? Because I, you know, you know in reading your book, I, I mean, I get a sense that still, culturally, we have not really evolved, and perhaps that's what you're finding in your findings, um, that we still don't nurture men and uh, women in the same way in the workforce, for instance, or in competitive activities and sports, whatever it is, in the same way that we do men. There's like subtle differences. Yeah, and I think the- that's the word. It's subtle, right? It's not like it used to be 20 years ago. It's not that there are different standards overtly. It is much more subtle than that. It's, I have two daughters. And my oldest daughter is 18 years old. She's a super good girl. She's really reliable. She works really hard. I can always count on her to do her homework without me having to kind of interfere at all. She'll look after her younger siblings. She'll lay the table for dinner. She'll bake a cake at tea time. And I've kind of relied on her to do that. I have four kids. I have a busy job. And I know that I have relied on her to fill that role in a way I just didn't with the boys. It, it was my, my own cultural biases and because it would made my life easier and then I would praise her for doing it and so she would do it more and I realized you know I am part of that culture that has slightly encouraged girls to be good girls very responsible very reliable and that's great except that when you get into the workplace something happens we had one interview with a fantastic psychologist out in California Carol Dweck who said to us if life was one long grade school girls would rule the world. But it's not. Somewhere between school and college and the rough and tumble of the professional life, the rules change and women start playing less well. And that's what we're trying to figure out in this book. Yeah, I think that's absolutely well said because, yeah, the rules of the game change. We get straight A's. We can be sitting in law school and, you know, get on law review and do all of those kinds of things. And we have, you know, graduate cum laude, whatever. But then when you get into the real world where the rules change, where it doesn't matter whether you got an A, what matters is that you take risks. And I think you point that out in your book. Women are not risk takers in the same way that men are risk takers. And when you take a risk and and you do well, you gain confidence, and you even gain confidence when you don't do well, because, but women are not risk-takers in the same way that men are. And I think you mentioned another thing, perfectionism, which also has to do with women doing well in school, right? We do really well in school, as you say, but in the real world, we focus 
I think you mentioned earlier in the interview, your women are afraid to ask for a raise, to ask for a better position, um, because they feel what? They have to be perfect in order to deserve it? And we, maybe we don't make, want to make our bosses mad at us or stick our necks out or ruffle a few feathers along the way or we don't really feel like those Hewlett-Packard studies suggest that we deserve it. But that perfectionism thing is terrible. We interviewed a lot of psychologists who there is now data out there. Women are 25% more prone to perfectionism than men are. We're perfectionists in our jobs. We're perfectionists in our home life, as wives, as mothers, even in our yoga classes. We <laughs> carry the burden of perfection. We want to be perfect. And of course... Think about it, Catherine. If perfect is your standard, you are never going to get there. It is, by definition, an impossible standard, and that's going to undermine your confidence too because you're never going to reach the standard that you're setting yourself. But you hit on something so critical there, and that's taking risk. And I think that's what changes between school where we keep our heads down and we color in the lines and we work hard and our natural talents are rewarded in that environment. But then we get into the workplace and what shifts that we think those talents and the way we've played up until now is going to carry on serving us well. But we look around us and we see the guys being promoted over us and getting pay rises above us. And we know that they're not more competent than we are. They just have something else. And what they have is confidence. And the studies are out there now. We interviewed a fascinating psychologist actually at the business school out in Berkeley who has done this great study showing that what matters for success in the business environment, in the, in the professional environment, is confidence as much, if not more, than competence. The people that get ahead are the ones who are confident. And I think for women, that's, when we first came across this study, Claire and I looked at it and said, oh, my God, this is so unfair. Do we want this in the book? It's so depressing. It's just not what women are all about. We're all about being competent and perfect and getting things right and working hard and going through that edit 15 times. But we have to start realizing that confidence is part of the game. So how do we reverse it? Okay, and we've kind of stated the problem here. And I guess, obviously, in your research, it seems it, it becomes very obvious that women are more competent than confident, rather than having confidence. So how do we reverse I mean, do we, is it, obviously, we can like relate some of it to our childhood. As you said, as a mother, you're even doing it to your 18-year-old daughter. Um, some of the things that, that you that you're critiquing or criticizing in your book, but um, so how do we reverse this whole thing? Do we raise our daughters differently? Do we at some point make them aware that the game changes when you get out into the, it's okay to get straight A's, but you know, the workforce, when you get out in the real world and you want to accomplish things, things are going to change. Information, what do we do? I think, I think you know, we, look, we're at graduation season, right? And if I could give one thing to all of those young women who are about to graduate from college, it would be the gift of cracking the confidence code 20 or 30 years before I did, because it would stand them in great stead to, to realize exactly what you've said, that the rules are going to change. And I think what we do is we start by encouraging our daughters and those around us, our mentees, people at work, to take more risks, to be prepared to fail, because if you take a risk, you may fail. And you have to learn about failure. You mentioned sports earlier. It's so important for young girls to be pay playing competitive team sports because when you're in a team and you're playing a competitive sport, you're playing soccer or hockey or football or whatever it is, you learn not only to win, you learn to lose. And you learn and that when you when do you lose, you have to brush it off and carry on. 
Yeah, and I think when you talk to men who have reached the top of their game or whatever, however you want to define it, CEOs of companies, people who make, you know, in government, they always, men particularly, will talk about their failures were much more important than their successes. That That's what motivated them to become who they are or what they are. And even on a little scale, think about it. If you, you take a risk, I'm... I had an example recently. I went into a meeting at the White House. I'm a journalist in Washington, D.C. I was called into this foreign policy meeting on the Middle East. I walk into this room, and I'm thinking it's going to be full of journalists. Actually, it turns out to be full of Middle East experts. All of these people are speaking Farsi and Arabic, and they are super-duper experts in their field. And I walk in and think, oh, I've been called. What am I doing here? I don't deserve to be here. And they're nearly all guys. There's only one other woman in the room. And we sit around the table, and it gets to the question and answer time. And I'm sitting there breaking into a sweat thinking, if I ask a question now, they're going to realize that I don't know as much as they do. But I'm also thinking, I'm the only one of two women in this room. I have to ask a question. I've got to make my voice heard for women around everywhere. And and I'm having this internal dialogue, not listening to what's going on in the room. And in the end, I forced myself to raise my hand and get the question out. And guess what? It wasn't the most intelligent question in the history of questions on the Middle East. But the sky didn't fall on my head. The earth didn't open up and swallow me whole. I was still there. And I think that it's that kind of risk-taking, even on a small scale. That was a small risk. But it's an important risk to take because you learn that the next time around it's going to be easier. I I I put myself through that once. Well, I think that's a great example. And, of course, um, obviously you are successfully you're in the room with all of these very high-powered people, if we can pull it back a little bit, we need to do those kinds of exercises with our little girls, don't we? I mean, we really have to focus on, I keep going back to that because I think one of the things you said, you know, why aren't we confident? Can we blame our parents? I think, yes, we can blame our parents. Uh, And I think that if you start when these girls are very, very young, and not that you're not going to encourage them to do well in school and get A's and take dancing lessons and, you know, singing and sports, but you really, really, I think as mothers of daughters have, and I have three sons, but uh, really have to be clear about encouraging your daughters to take risks very specifically. I mean, do you have any examples of that? Right, even even physical risks. I was in the playground recently with my eight-year-old daughter. She still loves going to the playground. Now, she's quite different from her big sister. She's much more rough and tumble. But I look around the playground, and the boys are on the swings, jumping off the monkey bars, throwing themselves down the slides, and the girls are kind of hovering around the edges. And when they do try and jump onto the swing or whatever it is in a way that's a bit more aggressive, they're kind of, their moms are slightly, you know, getting nervous and saying, don't, don't push yourself too far. Be careful, you're going to fall. Much more I noticed with the girls than with the boys. So even when it comes to like a physical risk, let them fall off the monkey bars. Let them fall off their bike. They, will, they need to learn all of this stuff by themselves and realize that they can be play in that field, that they can get involved in those competitive sports. Girls are doing much more competitive sports in America since Title IX, but they are dropping out at a much higher rate than the boys. Six times the rate of boys, they are dropping out in high school from competitive sports. And, and it's so good for their confidence levels to get in there, to win, to lose, to keep going. And part of building confidence, Catherine, is so much about taking action. It's about doing things and meeting hurdles and pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. To do that thing that's a little bit hard, we need to encourage our girls to do this too. One woman 
we met had just such a great example with her kids. She said, you need to come up with a list of small things that your child can do for themselves. Change a light bulb, fry an egg, take the bus, um, mend a hem, whatever the age-appropriate level is. Yeah. Give, them, give them something they can take ownership of. And when they fail it or they do it wrong or they put the knives and forks out wrong on the table, don't criticize them for that. Just let them learn. And I think it's that kind of thing. Don't, and the other thing that I think with kids is very important, the self-esteem movement that we had for 20 years of you're wonderful, you're perfect, you're fabulous as you are, you know what? It doesn't really work. It's not words that are going to build your child's confidence. It's doing things. It's looking back and saying, wow, that was hard, but I did it. I think another issue with parents, though, is that when you have, let's say you have daughters and sons, it's easier if you have a daughter who does, is much more compliant, who does well. I think you kind of alluded, I'm going back to your example of your own 18-year-old daughter, but it's easier it's when you have, a, you have the child who wants to do well, who gets the straight A's, who isn't always taking a risk because, you know, when kids start taking a risk and parents get uneasy or upset and, you know, they kind of, you know, the testosterone they accept it in their boys. So there's something to that as well. It's more comfortable. Maybe it's, it, it's simpler. So if you have a, a daughter who's compliant, and does good things, um, that's easier for the parents. So the tendency is, I think, to keep on encouraging that. Right, and, it's, and, and translate it into the classroom too, right? You have teachers who have 25 kids in the classroom and they're stressed out and they're underpaid and overworked, and it's easier for them too. So they also rely on the girls not to raise their hand until they have the answer perfectly worked out or to hand their homework in. And the girls are not running wild in the hallways and playing, you know, roughhousing in the schoolyard. They're just not doing those kinds of things. And the teachers and the parents rely on their girls to be these good girls. And being a good girl leads to perfectionism. And we talked about that earlier. Perfectionism is a real confidence killer. So we, I think we do need to encourage our girls to be, dare I say it, a little bit bad occasionally or not always be perfect. And I think this is something we can tell our girls as they head into college or as they're heading out of college, try failing. Try failing fast. There's this new techie buzz phrase around, fail fast. Everyone's talking about it in the tech world where you send out a whole load of ideas and one of them sticks. The others will probably fail but one of them will probably stick and you don't spend hours and hours and hours or months and months editing one particular report. You send it out quicker and you see how it goes down. And I think that's, it's a way of getting girls and women used to the idea that it's okay to fail. That it, that yeah, and I think if you have a standing. name for it, a label, I think, you know, you just, what, fail fast? It almost makes it, it, it like positive, right? <laughs> yeah, then, it, then it's okay. <laughs> right, I, I did a fail fast and that's fine. So, okay, so this is what... Here again, this is what's acceptable. I can do a fail fast. Uh, but did you, in your research, there must be some women out there also as examples who are or do have a lot of confidence, who have achieved these CEOs that you were talking to or lawmakers or these women in high positions. Were there any that stood out? Give us some examples and then how they got there or what's different about them who really did kind of exhibit that confidence Gene, or that 
air of comp or they are feel confident about what they're doing and who they are. Yeah, we did interview several women who are very confident. Most of them, I have to say, were happy to confess to moments of lack of confidence or nerves. And I think this is a key thing about confidence, that it's okay to be nervous. I walked into an executive committee meeting of a major law firm the other day to make a presentation on women in work. I looked around the table again, there's 14 guys and two women. And I, and I started to, again, break into a sweat. I think, oh, my God, this is such a high-powered group. They're going to notice that I'm nervous. My voice is going to go up. They're going to see that I'm sweating. And then I realized, you know what? It's fine to be nervous in this situation. In fact, it's totally normal to be nervous. I would be a robot if I wasn't nervous. There's only two other women in the room, and it's a super high-powered group. What you can't do is let those nerves stop you from taking action. And that's what defines, I think, the most confident women we met. So, for example, take Christine Lagarde, the head of the International Monetary Fund, the first female head of the IMF. Super confident woman. She, too, actually said to us there are moments when she has to dig deep inside herself to find her confidence to go into a meeting of finance ministers. But she goes into the meeting. She goes in very well prepared. She makes sure she knows her briefs backwards and forwards. She's a little bit too much of a perfectionist, probably. But she also said something else that was so interesting for us, which is that confidence for women doesn't have to look the same as confidence for men. We spent a long time, Catherine, wrestling with this idea of basically, do you have to be a jerk? to be confident. You have to have that kind of swagger and that bravado and dominate the meetings and speak longest and loudest and do things that I think for a woman often feel unnatural, kind of foreign. And it was Lagarde who said, actually, you know what? Women are at their best when they are being authentic. So you can be confident. You can sit at the table and raise your hand and ask for that promotion and ask for that pay raise, not mumble, not apologize to yourself, but you can do it in a way that is authentic to you. You can still listen to other people's opinions. You can still be conciliatory. You can still try and bring the whole room along with you. And that can be confident as well because we know that when women act just like men, they do get penalized professionally for it. They are, it's the B word comes out again. And they're seen as overly aggressive, even if they do exactly the same things as the guys are doing. But you can be confident and still be true to yourself. So you can be confident. You can express yourself in a different way. We're not trying to duplicate the same, what, we don't have to look like men. We don't have to feel like men. We tried that, right? We try that. It doesn't work. The shoulder pads, the string ties, bad look. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You're right. And also, I think one of the other, you just mentioned, I think we should kind of repeat this because even if you, if you feel like you, you really have to feel like you don't perhaps feel like you can accomplish whatever it is and you're in these high powered meetings, you have to just not accept that feeling. You can feel frightened. You can feel scared, but that doesn't, um, mean that you can't take the risk. Despite it, you take the risk. And I, I think traditionally that is what men do, and that's what we haven't done. I mean, if, is, is that what you're saying? Like, you know, it's okay to feel scared, frightened, uh, you know, terrified, but then you just you take the risk anyway. And I think another piece of that is, and I think you mentioned this too perhaps in the book, but as you start to change externally, that begins to change the internal. Actually, we, I think they're finding, I don't know if you found this in your findings, but your brain gets rewired. This as you, is so interesting. Yeah. 
This is the late, this is really the frontier stuff of neuroscience at the moment. It's the kind of hot new field of study is what they're calling brain plasticity. And we all know that if you give kids good stuff, music, good literature, uh, math skills, they will grow, their brains will grow and develop. What, what neuroscientists are really just discovering at the moment is that our brains are plastic or malleable or changeable until much later in life. So even at my old age, I'm 49, even to our 50s and 60s and 70s, you can change the way your brain works. And this is so exciting for women because it means that if we do those things you just mentioned, we overcome our nerves and we take action and we raise our hand in that meeting or we put ourselves forward for president of the PTA or whatever it is, if we keep doing that, our brains will actually change and the neurologists are seeing the brains change and it will become easier. An example, women much more than men take criticism to heart. It's part of our perfectionist thing, I think. You know, we, we do one tiny thing wrong and we're still thinking about it the next day and the next day and the next day. The men have forgotten it five minutes later. They let it roll off their backs and maybe it gets back to the sports field and, and, and back to the way their brains are wired, but the women are carrying these criticisms and these tiny slights and these little mistakes around for far too long. Now, you can change your brain to stop doing that. You can, there are tricks. We talk about them in the book, in the confidence code a lot. And we wanted to make the book very practical. So there's a lot of advice in there. For example, you, a, a three to one rule, which is one neurologist described to us. You think of three good things to counter that one bad thing. You keep doing it. You keep doing it. It's cognitive therapy. It's not that easy, but you have to keep doing it. Your brain will change and it will become more wired for confidence. That's a great example, I mean, because that's very practical. That's something that we can do. We can start when we're young. We can, as you say, even as, if you're in your 50s, 60s, and even 70s, you, you have the capacity to change your brain. Okay, that's one thing. Give us a, a couple other examples of, of actual, you know, practical ways in which we can do that, which we can change the, the chemical makeup of our brain so that we, are, we gain more confidence. Here's one example. Women uh, find public speaking very difficult. One of the main reasons that women don't run for public office, whether it's you know, on the PTA or running for the Senate, is that we're scared of public speaking. It's something that women find particularly difficult. Here's one tip. When you have to give any kind of a public speech, whether or make a presentation to your boss or give a toast at your friend's birthday party, take the spotlight off yourself and turn I into we. Women are much more comfortable when they're talking about the group. So talk about the team's success. Talk about the mission of the corporation. Talk about what we, the PTA, can do here, rather than talking about I and me. One senator, actually, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, put it to us. She said, women like to be needed. And when she can explain to young women that they should run for office because they are needed for the community, it's not about me or I, they feel that they're less self-aggrandizing and they'll be prepared to take the plunge. I think that's a really good tip from me to we. From me, from me to we, me to we. That's a, that's a good example. But why? I want to go back and ask you, why do you, where does that come from? Why are we afraid to stand up and speak in public? Uh, why, why are we different than men? I mean, did your research, did you find out, is there a reason for that? Is that because we... I mean, we don't, I think women's, I mean, there are some reasons women's voices aren't as strong as men. We don't have 
you know, even just physically, we don't sort of take over the room. I can think of a lot of external reasons why we might feel small and diminutive and not able to speak out in public. I just wondered what your findings were. Why Women feel very exposed when they're, pub- when they're speaking publicly, right? It is kind of, in a way, the ultimate test because you can't hide behind anything. Um, that whole thing of raising your hand to ask a question, you, and we've all done it. We've sat there in meetings and we've said, oh, no, I don't have a very interesting point. And then two minutes later, we've heard the guy next to us made exactly the same point to wider claim. And we're thinking, wow, why didn't I say that? And, it, and it, part of it is what we got back to at the beginning is that we underestimate our abilities. We, and we're scared to jump in there and risk exposure. We had this great study that we came across from a professor who is actually now in Italy at the University of Milan. And he had done this, what's called a spatial test, to try and test spatial awareness. It's a field in which the sexes tend to differ and men tend to do better in IQ testing. He sat this group of men and women down in front of this computer screen and they had to solve what looked a bit like a Rubik's Cube type puzzle. The women came out much worse than the men. So Professor Estes went back over the results and he found that actually part of the problem was that the women were skipping the answers. They just weren't answering the questions as often as the men were. So they were coming out with lower scores. So he went back to this group and he said, okay, guys, actually this time around you're going to take the same test, but you have to answer every question. When they did that, the women came out just as well as the men. There was nothing in their ability to stop them. It was just their confidence. They didn't want to risk answering the question if they weren't going to get it perfectly right. And that's part of the public speaking anxiety, too. We want to be perfect, and we're always worried we're going to be exposed. Yeah, and I think that kind of brings us full. We sort of started out talking about that at the beginning of the interview. We have to say goodbye. This has been fascinating. I want to make sure that people, our listeners, uh, they can buy the book, bookstores everywhere, online, Amazon.com. And what is the website that we can go to for more information about you and the book and, and, and the work you're doing? The website is theconfidencecode.com, and you can buy the book there, obviously. There's a blog up there, too. We're, we're interacting and chatting away with our people who are coming to the website, and there's something fabulous up there. We've taken a devised a confidence assessment. We're really trying to do some research on this, what it is that drives confidence in men and in women, and we had it with the help of two academic psychologists. We thought two or 300 people would take this assessment, Catherine. So far, 30,000 people have taken it in one week alone. Fantastic. Well, let's up the ante. Go out there and take the test. (laughs) And you too. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much, Caddy, for being on the show today. And and I'll mention the book one more time, uh, Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know. Thanks. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for a great discussion, Catherine. Yeah. We're going to say, I'm going to take a short break right now, and uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. 
There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and I'm back. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me is my next guest, Terry L. Walls, MD, Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Iowa, and uh, author of, uh, she has a new book, The Walls Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Walls. Oh, thank you. Very glad to be here. Okay, so let's, uh, I mean, obviously the reason for writing your book is a personal story, your personal story. You were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2000. You were uh, an active marathoner, mountain climber, and uh, apparently you joined the group of uh, 2.1 million people who live with MS today. Um, that's a that's a huge statistic. 2.1 million people, I guess, in the United States or worldwide, who uh, have MS. That's worldwide. 400,000 in the U.S. Uh, and the uh, rate of uh, diagnosing is increasing, and we're diagnosing at younger and younger ages. I believe the youngest now is. Uh, six years old. So my assumption is, obviously, you have a very specific protocol that has enabled you to, well, I, I have here that you actually were able to get back to riding 18 miles in one day. I don't know what your prognosis is, but let's kind of get into that. You're diagnosed. Sure. Um, so, you're, uh, yeah, you're told. I was diagnosed in uh, 2000 uh, on the basis of a history of optic neuritis, lesions in my spinal cord, weakness in my left leg, uh, and abnormal spinal fluid. Uh, at that point, they said relapsing and remitting, uh, suggested I take disease-modifying drugs, which I did. And I had just one relapse in 2001, so that would be a success if I was in a drug trial. But the problem was I was continuing to decline, and by 2003, I'd moved over to secondary progressive. And in that phase, there's no more remission, no more improvements. Uh, right. So what, what are some of the uh, secondary progressive is what? What were you able to do? What were you not able to do? Because you're, you know, so, just for the lay person, yeah. So secondary progressive means that uh, there's no longer improvements. You're going to steadily decline. At that point, I was beginning to have problems walking. I needed a cane, then a scooter. Uh, and as I got more advanced, it became more difficult to sit up in a regular chair. So then we got a zero-gravity recliner, so I could lay back, have my knees as high as my nose, had a chair like that for work, another one at home. I can how, old you, how old were you when all this was happening? Um, so I was diagnosed at 44. Uh, uh, by the time I was 47, I needed the uh, wheelchair. 
Um, so the, this was happening at a very, very young age. As I understand it, it doesn't multiple sclerosis, isn't it usually, aren't you usually diagnosed at a young age or isn't, isn't the onset of the, of the, of the condition of the disease, isn't it usually in your 30s or 40s or, or right. am I wrong? So yeah. usually diagnosed in your 30s and 40s, at diagnosis you can look back and realize you've probably been having symptoms for 10 to 20 years that people hadn't put together yet to make the uh, story, the diagnosis of MS. So there are subtle things that begin to happen. You're saying maybe in your 20s and 30s um, that one wouldn't necessarily... And what are they? I mean, you know... In my case, uh, I'd had uh, problems with pain uh, beginning during medical school. I'd have uh, twinges of discomfort on my face. uh, And this... Uh, they would sort of come and go, more likely if I was under stress. And as the years accumulated, the this discomfort became more electrical, and then eventually became like a 10,000-volt cattle prod being jabbed into my face. So that was part of my MS symptoms. And I had uh, visual problems, um, problems with my balance. Uh, but then when my walking uh, was affected, then uh, you know I had, a, again, another big evaluation and that's when they said, oh, this is really MS. Is there a hereditary component to MS, to multiple sclerosis? So um, we, we've identified about 100 genes that increase your risk ever so slightly, each one less than 1%. If you have a sibling, parent, or your child's risk will be between 2 and 5%. If you have two parents, the risk is 30%. So always uh, it's a, a complicated interaction with a few genes so 70 to 97% of the risk are these environmental factors, things like diet and lifestyle. Well, we hear about diet and lifestyle, diet and lifestyle. In, in, in every diet, I mean, there are so many, well, we'll just talk about diets and, um, and lifestyles, and if we alleviate stress and if we eat better, uh, we will be healthier and uh, you know, won't be so susceptible to chronic diseases. And we see this advertised on TV. So what makes your WALS protocol, which you use, Obviously, uh, the treatment that you were getting uh, for your MS was not helping. So, so, um, so in uh, 2002, while I was still walking around, my neurologist had told me about uh, the paleo diet. Uh, and so I, after 20 years of being a vegetarian, I went back to eating meat in 2002. It's still the Okay, the paleo, to explain the paleo diet. So this is a diet uh, based on trying to copy what people were eating before the dawn of agriculture. So it takes out grain uh, and dairy uh, and restricts legumes. So you're getting vegetables, fruit, and meat, uh, eggs, as your uh, main dietary sources. Uh, so I adapted that, but I still declined. Uh, and then in 2007, when I discovered functional medicine, I, I uh, took a great course, Neuroprotection, a Functional Medicine Approach for Common and Uncommon Neurologic Syndromes, had a deeper understanding of what the, my brain cells needed, had a long list of vitamins and supplements, but what I did that I think was so brilliant was I said, I've got to get these in the food, so then I did more research to figure out the foods that would have these 31 nutrients that I knew were really important to my brain, and I restructured my diet to maximize that intake. 
Um, and, and the it, results were, once you did started doing that, did you immediately start feeling better? So, I mean, you, you know, because you're talking about, I mean, obviously the paleo diet, that's a specific mm-hmm. diet, but it kind of goes, you know, so many of these diets say it's not good for us to eat meat. It's not, you know, we... Well, yeah. uh, that's right. There's a lot of confusion out there in terms of what, what is a healthy diet. This diet uh, that I designed was based on what science says brain cells need. Um, and I took out foods that had the highest risk of causing a food sensitivity problem. Um, and within three months, my energy was dramatically better. Uh, my thinking was more clear. And I could now walk with uh, a cane uh, in the hospital. Uh, I, and I could sit up in a regular chair. So yes. what was the response to your medical team, to the doctors, to the nurses, to the people who were taking care of you? You know, this was actually quite fun. Uh, people would see me, they'd be like, oh, my God, Dr. Walls, you're, you're walking. Um, and uh, so my, my colleagues were uh, amazed. My neurologist, uh, when I called him and went in to see him, uh, the nurse was walking around the waiting room, and I realized that she was looking for me in my wheelchair, and I stood up and waved my hand and said, Hey, Cindy, I'm over here. Are you looking for me? Uh, and so she was stunned. My neurologist was stunned. Um, and uh, at that time, I told them I wanted to uh, wean and get off the disease-modifying drugs, which he was fine with because I was doing so well, and I've essentially been off uh, immune suppression since, uh, I think, March of 2008. Uh, and uh, he's been so excited. He's changed how he thinks about MS, and he's now part of my research team where we are studying diet and lifestyle uh, as a treatment strategy for MS. Uh, but as I understand it, your protocol all works not only for MS, but it works for other psychological and physical d- disorders as well. That it, yeah. It's not simple. Yeah, so talk to so, us about that because sure. obviously so, there are a lot of other conditions where people... Uh, end up, would, you know, with, with, yeah, on so, a downward spiral, yeah. In my clinical practice, I take care of traumatic brain injury, and there's all sorts of psychiatric problems in, in that group with PTSD, anxiety, depression, obsessive-compulsive issues. Um, and I use the same kind of diet and lifestyle interventions, uh, again, with improved mood, uh, uh, greater uh, success with family life, with work life, uh, and improved recovery. Uh, then I also have a therapeutic lifestyle clinic where people with complex chronic problems come in. So they'll have uh, usually multiple uh, autoimmune conditions, uh, obesity, a lot of mental health stuff. Again, we use the same protocol, diet and lifestyle. We see uh, pain scores coming down, uh, fatigue coming down, energy going up, mental clarity, mood going up. The women come back pleased because they're losing weight without being hungry. The guys come back pleased and announcing, you know, Doc, my love life is better. Uh, And I see this whether we're treating a uh, fibromyalgia, uh, autoimmune problems like rheumatoid, lupus, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, diabetes, obesity, chronic pain syndrome. Well, Dr. Wells, with all the success, and obviously it sounds like you are very successful and you've yeah. kind of gotten some of these uh, medical physicians, you know, teams, medical teams to kind of go towards your specific uh, uh, protocol. But my question is, well, how do you know that 
when conventional, I'm saying conventional medicine, how do you know when one should be using conventional medicine or the WALS protocol, or do you combine the two, or how does that work? So in my clinical practice, if somebody has an acute problem, I I will use conventional medicine and drugs. So an acute problem is what? uh, Say they have severe high, high, severely high blood pressure, uh, chest pain, uh, or uh, they're having bloody diarrhea. Uh, So an acute, severe symptom, you may need meds. But I'm very upfront with with my patients that medicines will will help the symptoms, but they won't get at the root cause of the problem. To get the root cause of the problem, that's going to be a diet and lifestyle intervention. Uh, so we'll do. So you can combine. You could combine the two. I would assume in your yes. In, yeah. We, we, so it, and I routinely do. Uh, and then if, if people uh, experience recovery, and uh, they'll, uh, what I see is they need their conventional medicines less and less. Uh, they don't need the drugs for uh, fatigue. The blood pressure uh, meds are reduced. Their diabetic meds are reduced. Uh, and then if they're on immune suppression, uh, I, I may begin to have the conversation about let's try slowly tapering these. And we've been uh, quite successful <clears throat> at getting people off their uh, immune-suppressing drugs. But we, we do do that gradually, and we work with their prescribing physician. So how does it work for diseases like cancer, for instance, uh, or different kinds of cancer, or does it? Let's say someone is diagnosed. Um, Actually, I do talk about cancer in my book in that, uh, you know, I have the three diet phases, the Walls diet, Walls Paleo, and Walls Paleo Plus, which is a uh, diet that is lower in carbohydrate, higher in fat, sufficient protein, uh, and because you're more likely to be in ketosis, that's a particularly good diet for people who are, are uh, trying to prevent cancer, try to prevent a recurrence of the cancer, because cancer uh, is very, uh, really likes sugar, really likes a high-carb diet. Uh, and if you uh, give the body a high-fat diet and sufficient protein, that's uh, very effective at starving out cancer cells. So what you're saying is, Dr. Wallace, that if you do follow this protocol, it would help, or it does, in, I don't know if there are other statistics for that, it would help people, say, who are in remission, yeah. they've been diagnosed, but it keeps maybe the, the remission time longer. Yeah, uh, I, I assume it's not a cure for cancer, obviously, but it helps to keep the body healthier and therefore, yes. yeah, potential for living longer. Um, what is the response to the more conventional medical community? Because it sounds like, oh, wow, if this works, why wouldn't everybody be doing it? Well, you know, science, we, we evolve slowly, and we're going to expect uh, published research and papers to validate what we're doing. So uh, that was the first thing that was very important. We are doing clinical research, and we are publishing. We have more studies going on. Here at the university, I've been uh, presenting at our research seminars at the uh, Carver College of Medicine Research Day. Uh, So my peers get to see our results. They see the videos. Uh, They're very excited, and that's why I'm coming to various departments talking about uh, the work. And I'm having my faculty colleagues call me uh, to discuss cases and to get my perspective on uh, their patients that aren't doing so well. One of the things you say that you help individuals to 
uh, take their health into their own hands. Like it sounds like this, this protocol is empowering. I mean, one of the things, uh, very specifically, uh, keeping track of your food intake and your pain and energy levels. Talk about that because that's really important. I don't think people, or just as a layperson, you yeah. automatically kind of connect the two. I mean, I'm somebody who watches my diet and eats well and maintains my weight, but as I age, I get certain pains and energy yeah. levels change, but I don't connect necessarily. So tell uh, us, how do we do I, that? I, I'm trying to teach people how to be hackers for their own health uh, so they can track their pain, uh, energy level, or if they have another symptom, they want to track headaches, for example, uh, and record their uh, food consumption so they know that they've eaten their greens, their sulfur-rich color, uh, and what they've eaten so that if they have a bad day, they can go back and look to see was there a food trigger uh, did they have tomatoes? And it turns out tomatoes is a trigger for them. Uh, and we, I discussed that in the book to teach people how to monitor uh, how they're doing every day with what they're eating and doing so they can learn and adapt. What about those things that we don't have control over, environmental, let's say, those environmental where, you know, we live in a, in a, in a city where there's a, a lot of noise, a lot of pollution. How does that fit into so, the picture? Because uh, we think, don't have control over that. Right. So we're all born toxic now because we use so much uh, chemicals in industrial and food processes. So I, I talk about the fact we're likely toxic what we can do uh, with our food to make it easier for your liver and kidneys to process and eliminate those toxins and get them back out. Um, I, I talk about the, the stress in our life, that we have all these events happening to us. It's very stressful. But the amount of stress we experience you know, it has to do with our response to these events. And so we talk about things you can do uh, to uh, moderate that uh, stress. And right, give us an example. It's always good to have examples because oh, how do we, yes, absolutely. stress is there. We're not so, going to eliminate stress. We all know that. And we have different stressors and different stressors stress people differently and all of that. But how do we reduce it and manage our stress? Give us so, like... Uh, one yeah. is to understand the higher purpose and goals in your life. Uh, and, and that's very helpful to have meaning in your today's circumstance. Another is a daily uh, journaling about uh, the stressful circumstances in your life, which can give you a tremendous insight and actually uh, really helps lower the stress hormones. And then there's a daily meditative practice, mindfulness uh, or prayer, yoga, time in nature, Epsom salts bath, uh, aromatherapy, uh, and, and that you can do these things in just two or three minutes. It doesn't have to be a long time period. Yeah, because that was my next question, and you know, as, as, as you know, as I'm listening to, you, I'm thinking, it all sounds really good and very positive. But do I have time to do that? Number one and number two, and then am I always focusing on my body and my mind, and it, it's not spontaneous, and it's too much work for me, and I'm just, it's just, I can't do it all. Right. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, you just uh, two or three minutes is perfectly fine to start with. That we uh, talk about starting with where you're at right now. Um, and so if, if two minutes is all you're going to be able to do, that's where you start. So it, it isn't necessarily, you don't have to go to the gym for two hours or, you know, do no, all no. the exercises. It, it, no, it, you know, yeah, 
No, we talk about uh, dealing with where you're at right now. Uh, we also talk about uh, doing this as a family commitment, that people will be much more successful adopting the Walls Protocol as a whole family unit, and the family can have conversations about uh, what speed, at what tempo, they're going to make these changes. Yeah. I think that's a great idea because actually the 180 to that, the opposite of that, when you see families, and I, I'm very kind of cognizant of it because, you know, obesity is really the number one killer, I think, in the United States is our number no, one that, health that, problem. Absolutely. And you see families who are in it together in the in, in not a good way. I mean, mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and whoever the family make, whatever the family makeup is, uh, the parents, the kids, they all seem to have a weight problem, or they're all obese. So they're all doing. They yeah, are in it, it together. It, it, so you can do the opposite. Together. It's a yeah. diet and lifestyle issue, uh, and I, I talk about this uh, in the book that making these diet and lifestyle changes far more successful done as a family. Uh, yeah. And uh, we, unfortunately, you know, in 1700 we had uh, 10 pounds of sugar a year that we ate, and in 2000 we're eating over 100 pounds of sugar a year. And that sugar addiction uh, is a big driver in inflammation and, and that obesity epidemic that you were just referencing. Yeah, it, it's very obvious, of course, and that there's a whole issue. The other side of it is is kind of having to go against the, the, the marketing of all of the foods that contain all this sugar. It's really difficult, especially oh, with kids to see this stuff on difficult. television. Yeah. Uh, it's so marketed to our children uh, in uh, such an unfortunate way. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I guess, what would you? That's another battle that has to be fought. I guess you would say. Um, so the walls protocol, and and I want to just kind of because we don't have that much time left. So it is autoimmune diseases, psychological. Uh, I mean, problems, OCD, those kinds o- of OCD, things. It'll also be perfect for obesity, uh, for any kind of uh, neurological issue like Parkinson's, uh, uh, memory loss. It's been very helpful for fibromyalgia. You know, actually, I have some guys who found this to be very helpful for early erectile dysfunction as well. Because we're uh, helping people get the, their cells working properly again. And because life is self-correcting, that leads the whole person being healthier, more vital, uh, and youthening typically in front of our eyes. Well, that's interesting. So it, it also works on erectile dysfunctioning because you see that's another area. You, it, you turn on the from six o'clock on in the evening. You know, all of I, I can't remember all of the uh, the medicines, but that they are uh, being marketed, you know, pushed out there. Be, uh, yeah. Then the and the real root cause, the problem has to do with our diet and lifestyle choices. And letting people know that we can choose better, make different choices that let our cells heal and let us discover how great we could feel again. What, give us a website because we've got about a minute left. Sure. Where we can Very go. I, the, the Walls, yeah, I just want to say the book again, The Walls Protocol. And we're talking to Dr. Terry Walls, clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. Yeah, website we can go to for more information. Terry Walls, T E R R Y, Walls, W A H L S. Com. We're doing clinical trials. If there are people who are interested in learning more about our trials for MS, uh, you can call my secretary at 319-356-4421.
Okay, why don't you mention that number again as everybody's running for their pencil and, or pen. <laughs> and, and uh, so yeah. 319-356-4421. Great. It's a real pleasure talking to you today. Obviously, lots of good information. And uh, the WALS protocol offers you a chance to create more health and vitality. And uh, I, I think we covered most of the areas today. Um, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Great having you. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.